Good morning. I didn't get to be here for the welcome of the Grambling team. Good morning, guys. We're glad to have you here. You know, I feel safe this morning. This would be a bad morning for an intruder to come in and act stupid, wouldn't it? <laughs> Remember the rule, protect the nursery, protect the elderly, and then protect the pastor, right? That's the, that's the rule. But guys, we are so honored to have you and ladies that are here with them. We're so honored to have you, all you guys and uh, folks here today. And good to see everybody here this morning. How many of you like to weigh? Coach, y'all been weighing these guys regularly the last week? You try. I like that, the, the effort. 152. I knew these. <laughs> I did that in the first service, and three ladies made fun of me. I said, come on, come on. And they didn't say a word the rest of the sermon. Um, The church where I met my wife, my second church, we had a lady that was, uh, uh, she was blind, and I was good friends with her family, was in their house a lot. They had talking scales. Wouldn't that be terrible? Talking scales. So I was over there one time, and I said, I think I'm going to try these out. I got on them, and they started screaming, help, get off me, you're killing me. They didn't, but I mean, you know, isn't, isn't that embarrassing? You know, 222, oh my goodness, who was on the scale? It was my wife. I'm kidding, honey, if you're wherever you are. We, uh, you know, getting weighed is an important part. It really is an important thing, but it is an uncomfortable thing. And this morning in Daniel 5, we're going to look at being weighed where God gets the scales out. Thank goodness it's not the Toledo scales or the scales that uh, tell us how much we need to lose or how, how much we weigh. But it's, it's really, it's more serious uh, even than your, your physical health, it's your spiritual health. Daniel chapter 5, and I want to start with this this morning. No matter who you are, no matter who I am, God is watching closely your, your life. He's watching you closely. Now, you, you hear that, and your first inclination might be, ah, that's kind of negative. You mean God's honing in on me? God is looking at me? No. One thing is, folks, you, you watch carefully something you love, Right? I mean, I got two dogs. Uh, I watch them closely, my wife, my kids, my family. Uh, you watch closely what you love. Now, we're going to look at a king who was being watched closely because he was fixing to slip out of, uh, into eternity in a bad way. But understand that this king, the guy in our story today, I really think he felt like he was above God. He felt like he was, and by the way, none of us understands what it would be like to be a king where you had just absolute power. But one of the big parts of the story is, is that no matter who we are, God is watching us closely. Now, here's the first thing. God sees the good things we do. See, oftentimes when we think of a judgment or an evaluation, we think negative. Okay, oh, they're going to tell us everything we're doing wrong and how we're failing and, and uh, you know, what we need to be doing better next week or in the next game or at the next evaluation. But when God critiques us, and by the way, good coaches, good bosses, good parents critique, they see the good things too. God sees the good things that you're doing. Other people may not notice it. God sees it. In fact, the Bible says you do not give a cup of cold water to someone who needs it that God doesn't notice. Isn't that great? God sees the good things. Now, here's the negative thing. God sees the bad things we do too. 
Not only is God aware of all the good things we do, God's aware of all the things we do. And verse 1 through 4 is the beginning of this story, a very interesting story. (laughs) King Belshazzar, some people pronounce it Shazar, so I may go back and forth. I I think I've just settled on calling him King B. He gave a great banquet. Listen to this, for a thousand of his nobles, a thousand people, and they drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, it's probably his grandfather, but the way the Hebrews talked, a, a father could, they, they could mean a son, a grandson, the same thing, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken, listen, from the temple of God in Jerusalem. This story's going bad quick. And the king and his nobles and his wife and his concubines drank from them as they drank the wine from the goblets from God's temple. They praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This isn't going to be good, is it? This isn't going to have a happy ending, I can tell you right now. This... Belshazzar, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a famous king. And this grandson was either the governor called king, or he may have literally been the the king of Babylon proper, and his dad was probably the king over the whole kingdom. But what had happened, Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, a generation earlier, had ransacked the Jewish people. He had defeated them, and part of what he did when he defeated them is he went in their temple, and he took all of their precious things, and instead of melting them and making cash flow, basically, out of them, he just stored them away. Some people estimate there was meaning a good load of this, 5,400, 5,400 gold cups, bowls, and goblets. Folks, we don't have 5,400 plastic forks and paper plates in our kitchen. This is gold stuff. This is valuable. This is stuff that was in the temple of the real God. And so they're partying, and obviously the king gets a little bit tipsy, and so he gets cocky, and he says, you know what? We defeated that God of Israel, who happens to be the God of the Bible. Let's really, let's kind of show how big we are, bring in the thing that were precious to that God, and we're going to use them as part of our partying. They were disrespecting God, being defiant and arrogant, and God didn't miss a beat of it. And this is where the story goes bad for our Mr. King here. goes bad quickly. Folks, this is not a positive thing, but it's a very important thing. God sees everything we do. I try to read a scripture in Matthew chapter 6 in the New Testament almost every day that says this, basically, I'm paraphrasing it, that whatever you say, whatever you do, whatever you think, whatever your motive is, God knows it. We don't get away with anything from God. He sees what's going on. A few years ago in Bradford, England, a crook broke into a bar. I guess he was a a frequent uh, uh, tender of this bar, and he liked their security cameras. So when the bar closed, he broke in, and he began to steal the security cameras. Well, the cops caught him. They realized there was a break-in after he'd been in there a while, came in, and they caught him. And this is is what's funny. They take him to the police station. The very cameras that he had stolen when they were in their backpack, they replay them, and it shows him stealing the cameras. Dumb thief? (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's kind of like with God. God sees it all, doesn't he? The cameras are rolling. God sees it all. Coach Williams, my high school football coach, was a wonderful guy, wonderful person. 
And he had a famous saying at halftime. He was my coach my sophomore, junior, senior year in high school. When we weren't doing well, he would get, he would get, get in the, where we were all huddled up together, and he would be angry. Coaches have to get mad, don't they, guys? I mean, that's part, that's part of it. You know, that's part of being a coach. You have to be able to, 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 to get angry with guys. And he would get mad. And, and this coach, I mean, he was never, uh, uh, he never hit us or anything like that. But, you know, he would get angry, and he would say, I don't know what's going on right now. I can't tell for sure, but I'm going to know tomorrow because the eye in the sky don't lie. Now, if you know anything about sports, you know what I'm talking about. They film the games. And I wanted to correct him and say, Coach, isn't it the eye in the sky does not lie? Wouldn't that have been great at halftime? He would have took my helmet in my head and pushed me all the way into the 20-yard line. What the coach was saying was very true. He said, you know what? We, we can't tell everything that you guys are doing. We're making excuses. I didn't miss that block. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And he said, you know, we can't tell for sure, but you know what? We'll know tomorrow. And you know what? That stinking camera never lied, did it? Somebody else putting my jersey on. Coach, I promise you that wasn't me out there. It saw the good things, but it never missed the bad things. Folks, God's watching. Now, you may say this morning, we'd rather go to church and hear about God's love. God is love. And the whole point at the end of this sermon is he's love and he's reaching out to you. But if you don't deal with the hard stuff, that's like going to a doctor when you're two days away from a heart attack and him saying, you're healthy, go run a marathon. He's not doing you a favor. So I'm trying to help you this morning. God's watching us. Here's the second thing. At some point, we will face the judgment of God. At some point, we will face the judgment of God. Oh, not me. You don't know me. I've got connections. That's awesome. (laughs) You're not bigger and badder than the king was. At some point, every one of us will. Let's look in verse 5 and 6. You want to talk about the Bible's not boring, ladies and gentlemen. I want you to look in verse 5 and 6 with me. This is like a haunted ghost story. They could make a TV show out of this. Look in 5 and 6. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. It was near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave away. Archaeologists have recently discovered this palace in Babylon and literally where this banquet room was, it was, they had white plaster walls. Now, I want you to picture this. Everybody's been knocking back the wine. They've been probably making fun of God, disrespecting God, being defiant, being arrogant. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the party, remember, there may be 500 people in this room right now, maybe a little bit more, but, but there was a thousand at least in there. So, it is a party. And all of a sudden, a hand. Now, in the Hebrew, it probably it could have been an elbow to a hand. It may have just been a wrist to a hand. But out of nowhere, it appears, and it says it appears near a lampstand. Now, they didn't have electricity, so the rooms would not have been as bright as they are today. So a lampstand, was, it was appearing where the most bright spot could be. And a hand appears, and it begins to write something on the wall. How many of you... Feel sorry. Would you agree with the king? Your knees would be knocking at this point. I ask you again, how many of you would be terrified at this point? And let me answer for you. You absolutely would. Because you can't do anything to a hand that appears and begins writing. That's hard to fight, isn't it? The judgment of God had showed up for King Belshazzar. He was terrified, and you can't blame him. God... God turned a keg party into a judgment room right there. 
God changed the banquet room into a place where his justice was fixing to be exacted on this king. Let me tell you a few thoughts on this. We, we face God's judgment here on earth to some extent. Not fully, not completely, but we do. Things come to roost, folks. There's a, a passage in Galatians in the New Testament New Testament book that says, what you sow, you reap. If you, if you plant corn, you don't get watermelons. And when the police come and there's marijuana in your backyard, don't say, well, I planted tomatoes. That's not what comes up when you plant tomatoes. Amen? And we sow what we reap. In other words, how we live and how we behave, it does come back to us here on this earth. Good ways are bad ways. Several years ago, 2007, a man named Maximo Geraldo in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania was arrested. Now, that's not significant because Philadelphia is a big town. There had to be 100, 150 people arrested in Philadelphia on that particular day. He was an escaped convict, which made it a little different. But what really upped the ante on Maximo is Maximo was arrested in 2007. He had escaped from prison in 1979. He had been on the loose for 28 years. Folks, I'm going to bet you this. I've never talked to Maximo, but I'm going to bet you this, that he thought he was free. I mean, you're safe for 28 years. You're not expecting the federal agents to come knocking on your door and say, hey, uh, by the way, put your hands behind your back and you're going back to prison for a long time now. 28 years, but you know what? The justice system finally caught up with him, and it catches up with us. You see, we face God's judgment to some extent here on this earth. But here is the, the, the maximum part of it. We face God's judgment at the end of our lives. Now, now, listen to me. I know this isn't pleasant, but how important is this? At the end of our days, we will stand before God. Verse 25 through 31, we'll jump to the end of the chapter. It says, this is the inscription that was written. Mina, Mina, Tikal, Parson. This is what these words mean. Mina means God has numbered the days of your reign, King Belshazzar, and brought it to an end. Tickle, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck. And he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Look in verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Now, these words, these little weird words, we're going to go back in a moment and look more at them, but they were written Aramaic. And the king probably could not have read Aramaic, but there were people around that could. But they go get this guy named Daniel. Daniel is a... He's found earlier in the, the scriptures, and they get him, and they know that Daniel is a, uh, he, he, can, he can interpret scriptures, he can read, uh, God uses him to understand the dreams and things. So he, they get him, and they bring him in here, and he interprets what God is saying here. Again, we'll look at that more in a moment. But basically what God was saying to this man is, look, dude, your time is up. Everybody, listen, everybody's got a time when it's going to end. Your time is up. Your life has been weighed, and it's way off balance. And even tonight, you're going to die, and you're going to lose everything that you had, your kingdom. Pretty, pretty stiff, pretty tough stuff. 
The Egyptians believed their god, with a little G-O-D, Osiris, literally had a pair of scales that when a person died, he put their life, good deeds and bad deeds on the balance, and how that weighed out determined their eternity. It's very possible the Babylonians could have believed the same thing. God was speaking to him in a language he understood, but here's the language we understand too. You're going to die, and I'm going to die. Hebrews 9.27 says this, A man is destined to die once, and after that to face the judgment. You're going to die, I'm going to die. We're going to stand before God. We're going to give an account for our life. Now listen, it's easy, it's easy this morning to look at your watch, to think about lunch, to be ho-hum. I mean, what does this matter? You know, I'm 30, I'm 20. Man, you could die today. I, I hope you live 80 more years. I hope you live to be 140. But that's not guaranteed. And the ultimate test is when we stand before God someday. Back in the late 1990s, President Bill Clinton had gotten some trouble. And he was impeached by the House of Representatives. And he went to the Senate. This is the kind of way this process works. And the Senate had the option to vote him out of office or not vote him out of office. They, they decided not to vote him out of office. So he stayed in office. And Newsweek magazine the next week, one of their editors, a guy named Howard Feynman, wrote an article. And he said, Bill Clinton has escaped the, the judgment of his peers. But his ultimate judgment is coming. And I thought, Newsweek is fixing to go preacher on me? And then he said, no, he said, his ultimate judgment is his legacy, historical legacy. And I thought, no, it's not. Bill Clinton's ultimate judgment is not his historical legacy, nor is it yours. Our ultimate judgment is when we stand before God and we have to give an account for our life. Let me give you another thought on this. God's judgment's perfect. All right, how many of you think people jack the scales up on you? I'm a conspiracy guy when it comes to this. I'm convinced Dr. Blackwell at his office, especially when he knows I'm coming in, says, add 10 to it, and they do that. Or either when I'm not looking, the nurse does like this. I'm convinced at my house my wife does that too. I, you know, I get on and it's, no, it's perfect, it's perfect. Doctors will deny it, wives will deny it. How many of you ever, ever feels like the scales cheat you? Women, raise your hand. I know. I, I had a mom and two sisters. I got two daughters and a wife. I understand. Even my female dog gets on the scale and kind of looks at it funny. And a big old boxer. They're probably not cheapness, to be honest with you. It's probably us. But, you know, God's judgment's going to be perfect. God doesn't have his finger on the scale. God doesn't have to adjust it one way or the other. God's judgment will be perfect. Again, it may be easy to say, well, hey, you know what, man? I am sitting, living in a nice house. I drive a nice car. I have a nice country club. I got a lot of money in the bank. I'm a good person. That's a long way off. And when I'm in the nursing home and I feel like I'm fixing to die, the pulse is getting weak, I'm going to get it right with God. You don't know you're going to have that opportunity. I, I'm going to bet somebody in this room doesn't even really believe that's going to happen to you someday. It is. You recognize the name John Gotti? Does that sound familiar to any of you older people that will? John Gotti was a big-time criminal in New York City. In fact, he was the head of the Gambino crime family, mafia family, in New York for, for, for several years. He was called the Teflon Don. A Don is the thing they call mafia people. Teflon, they said nothing stuck to him. He would, get, he would be put on uh, trial for murder. They'd intimidate witnesses. The, they would pay off jurors. 
He would always get off. But you know what finally happened to John Gotti? He got convicted. He got sent to federal prison for the rest of his life where he spent 23 hours a day in a jail cell by himself. And then he died in 2002 in his 60s of cancer. You know what? Nobody is Teflon forever. That king wasn't. John Gotti's not. You and I aren't. So here's what I want to ask you this morning and ask myself, how are we going to weigh out someday when we stand before God? How are you going to weigh out? Listen, this is not something you need to figure out in the future. This is something you need to think about today. You need to evaluate this regularly. I played college football for one year, and when we were in in our fall practice, they would have us weigh four times a day. I coach, I don't know if y'all still do that. We would weigh in the morning before we went to practice, then we'd weigh when we got in. You'd write it down every time. Then you'd you'd do that in the afternoon, and you'd do that in the evening. So they were trying to make sure nobody lost too much weight and therefore could dehydrate or would have a physical problem. They were monitoring your weight closely, which was very, very wise. You need to monitor where you are with God, friend. You need to evaluate where you are with God. Again, don't count on that you got five years in the nursing home to be bored and watch daytime TV and to do that. Evaluate it now. Let me give you some options about the judgment, how it can pan out for you and me. I'm going to give you some questions how it can pan out. One, will it be positive? Did you know the judgment can be a positive thing? Did you know that? Did you know that you can stand before God someday? If you're a Christian... And if you've tried to live for Christ and the judgment will be good, you don't have to be perfect, friend, because you're not going to be perfect. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, as Paul was dying, here's what he said. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to also to all who have long Here's Here's what Paul said. Paul wasn't perfect. But Paul said, look, I have, man, I've stayed in the game. I kept swinging. I stayed faithful. And when I stand before God, I'm not going to get a perfect mark, but I'm going to heaven because I'm a Christian, and and God's going to be pleased with me because I live for him with all my heart until he took me home. Was that you? It sure can be. But here's the second option. Will the judgment be bad for you and for me? It can be positive or it can be really bad. It was not good for our friend the king. Let's look in verse 20 through 25. It's a little history. It says, but when his heart became arrogant, he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar, his granddad, and and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and he ate grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged the Most High God as sovereign over the kingdoms of men and set over them anyone he wishes. Now look in verse 22. But you, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. In other words, he knew what God did to his granddad, how he humbled his granddad, how his granddad repented, 
but he blew it off. Man, how much more is God going to say to you and me? We have heard the Bible preached. We've heard it taught. You can turn on TV probably 24 hours a day if you've got enough channels and hear a sermon. Christian radio, it, it's exposure, exposure, exposure. And God's not interested in how much you know. He's interested in how much you do. And I think God's going to say to us, did you do what I told you to do? Verse 26, 25 through 28. This is the inscription that was written. Mina, Mina, Tekel, Parson. Let me tell you a little bit about this. These, these, interestingly enough, these words were nouns, but when Daniel translated and interpreted them, he interpreted them as verbs. They were nouns describing weights, but God was using them as a verb to, to show an, an action here. He said, mean it, man, listen, God has numbered your days, king, and it's over. God's numbered your days too in mine. Again, maybe 80 more years, but they're numbered. Then he says in verse 27, Tekel, you have been found, weighed on the scales and found wanting. What he told the king was, look, here's God's standard and you failed. Someday God's going to hold you and me to his standard. And, and the bottom line is, did, did we meet it? Then he tells the king, lastly, your kingdom is divided. Your days have come to an end. In other words, it went real bad for the king. Let me give you the, the scenarios with this. Here's the first one. You can be a Christian who gets to heaven with a bad grade. Now, I'll explain that. Maybe this morning you can honestly look at yourself and say, you know, I really do have a relationship with Jesus. I am a Christian. That's awesome. I don't understand this, but I know this is what the Bible teaches. Even Christians will be judged by God. Not on heaven. Heaven's past fail. You're a Christian. You're going to heaven. But as a Christian, we're going to be judged on how we lived, how faithful we were, and how we served God. It says in the New Testament, some are going to be saved, but as by fire. I used to have a friend that said, some people are going to get to heaven, but they're going to smell like smoke. <laughs> I think that's accurate. I don't know how that works. I don't know how you get into heaven and get spanked before you get in. But God says it. I believe it. Here's the situation, at least with Christians in our part of the world. So many people say they're Christians. One, they're, they're not, a lot of them. But two, some of them really are. But for some reason, we have gotten so apathetic. We are so casual about church, about the Bible, about prayer, about serving God, about living for God. We do everything on our terms. We have turned God, made God into our image. We're bitter, we're angry, we're profane. And I want to tell you, there's a whooping ahead when you stand before God and we've lived unfaithful like that. And it doesn't matter if you believe me or not. I mean, that's, that's what the Bible teaches. That's the truth. Christian, where are you with that? Here's the second question. Will you get into heaven? Revelation 20:15 look what it says if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was cast into the lake of fire 
Bible says ultimately there's two destinies. There's heaven and there's hell. Whether you get to heaven or hell is based on one thing. If you gave your life to Christ here on this earth, not how pretty you are, handsome you are, talented, skilled, wealthy, whether you gave your life to Christ. You know, there's an old saying, have you seen the handwriting on the wall? And I would bet, I don't know where that came from, but I would bet it comes from this Bible passage. And you know what that means? When someone says, can you see the handwriting on the wall? They're, They're saying, something's fixing to happen. Do you have the wisdom and the discernment to see that? Do you see, can you look what's coming down the road? Here's what God wants us to do today. God wants us to see the handwriting on the wall. That that he sees what we do. We're going to answer for it. And we better be ready. God's written that out for you and me. What are we going to do with it? Let's pray. This morning, if you're a Christian, you know that you are a Christ follower. I would ask you right now, how are you and Jesus doing? And if you're not doing well, I want to ask you today to repent and get things right with God. Whatever you need to do this morning to get right with God, I want to challenge you to do that. If you're not a Christian, you're here today and you go, you know, I don't know if I'm a Christian. Maybe you know you're not. I want to encourage you right where you're seated. Would you pray? And just say, just pray with me and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I want to turn from my sins. I believe you're God's son. I believe you died for me and arose for me. Jesus, come into my heart. And I give you my life this morning. Let me have your attention just for a second. The moment we're going to stand, we're going to sing, but what we're really doing is we're trying to get you to respond to Christ. Maybe you just ask Christ in your heart, or maybe you're ready to do it. I know it's hard to do, but I want to challenge you, whether you're in the balcony, you're on the floor, when we stand in a moment, come and pray with one of these ministers. Give your life to Christ. Make sure before you leave here, that you're on your way to heaven. Maybe you'd like to join the church today. One way you can do that is when we stand is come and talk to one of our ministers. We can help you with that today. Maybe this morning you are a Christian. You know you belong to Christ, but the bottom line is if you stood before God today and how faithful you've been and how true you've been, it would not be pretty. I want to challenge you to repent, to turn back to God, Maybe that'll be just where you're standing. Maybe you want to come and get on your knees at the altar or pray with a minister. But our challenge today is to be ready for what certainly lies ahead. Let's stand. As God leads you today, you come. You respond to it this morning.